it's the 20th of November. My name's John Dennis. Gordon Brown says there is no plan B if world leaders cannot secure an agreement at next month's UN summit on climate change in Copenhagen. They may agree that combating global warming is a moral imperative, but the reality of fighting the recession and real politic means a global deal may not happen. So the next two and a half weeks before the conference begins are crucial. This week's meeting between the leaders of China and the US will have been key. And here to discuss those developments are Jonathan Watts, our Asia environment correspondent who's in Beijing, and in Washington, Suzanne Goldenberg, who fulfills a similar role for The Guardian in the US. And with me in our London studio is James Randerson, editor of our environment website. In the next 20 minutes, you'll hear their views on the road to Copenhagen. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. We'll also hear from George Monbiot, the Guardian columnist and environmental activist, from the Shadow Energy Secretary Greg Clark, who may be in charge of Britain's climate policy if the Conservatives win the election, and from Nicholas Stern, the former Treasury economist. Suzanne Goldenberg in Washington. A week ago, Barack Obama sounded pessimistic about a deal, but then he met President Hu Jintao in Beijing. Is there now fresh momentum behind a deal? Well, I'm afraid uh, from Washington, it doesn't look like there's any new momentum. Uh, It is true that an understanding between the US and China is crucial to a successful outcome at Copenhagen, because between them, America and China account for about 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions. But for America to act, uh, Barack Obama needs the Congress to sign on to agree to uh, cutting America's own emissions. And so far, he's Uh, not being able to deliver on that campaign promise. Uh, Legislation on climate change is stalled in the Senate, and there seems to be a sapping of political will to move that forward even in 2010, let alone in the two short weeks remaining before Copenhagen. John Watts, what's the mood like in China after the uh, summit this week? I I think the expectations have uh, moved backwards and forwards in the past week alone. It seemed that Barack Obama and several other senior uh, leaders have uh, decided that they would go for the plan B, the the two-step way of moving forward that would see Copenhagen as just a a way station, if you like, and that the actual, the legal deal would actually have to be delayed until next year at the earliest. So that was one of the lowest points. And then when Obama met Hu earlier this week, there were more signs of encouragement. There was a a, a joint declaration in which both sides spelled out that Copenhagen would set numerical targets, that they would work towards transparency in doing, uh, in, in moving forwards, and that whatever is decided at Copenhagen would come into immediate effect. So these kind of lifted things. But uh, I agree with Suzanne completely that the feeling in China is that everything at the moment is being hamstrung by the US Senate. James Randerson, is Copenhagen going to be all about China and America? Well, to be honest, it always was really uh, i mean even uh, after kyoto uh, in you know the years after kyoto was was signed and agreed british officials were sort of talking about 
basically everyone else other than other than China and America at the next at the next big decision point would just be kind of holding the coats and uh, greasing the wheels and hoping to get a deal you know between those two i mean fundamentally it comes down to uh, america saying we we need you to curb your emissions china because your huge population and your and your fast growth rate is growing production of greenhouse gas emissions in, uh, you know very fast and so we need you on board and china is turning around and saying well hang on a second your per capita carbon emissions are sort of four or five times ours you know how, how can you talk and historically you know you've you've emitted loads of uh, of carbon over the last sort of century since the industrial revolution so you know you have to you know really take a hit to your carbon emissions before we're going to start thinking about it and, you know when we have you know millions in poverty in in rural areas who hardly emit any carbon at all and by the way while you're at it we, we'd like a lot of money to help us do it well let's hear now from environmental activist and guardian columnist george mombio he spoke to us earlier about his hopes for a deal. I think Obama has made it pretty clear now that nothing very substantial is going to happen there. And already people are talking about a substantial agreement next year. And the real danger here is that it ends up a bit like the Doha round of the World Trade Agreement, that it just keeps being bumped on and bumped on, that the momentum is lost, the energy is lost, and we end up without a substantial agreement at all to replace the Kyoto Protocol when it expires in 2012. I I think what will happen is that um, they'll all come out and say, great progress has been made, substantial talks have been had, we have agreed that we will be agreed sometime in the future, and we're going to set this date for July next year or something like that, when we're going to have a new summit, and we'll sort it all out then. The, the, The problem with that is that the, the great drive and energy and clarity that there was around Copenhagen being the time when everything would get sorted out, that won't be there. But the other problem is, well, there's two other problems. One, you're pushing up very close to the end of the Kyoto period. And the third problem is we don't actually have much time. There, there's a very small window of opportunity in which there's a possibility of preventing more than two degrees of warming. And that window is closing rapidly. George Monbio. Suzanne, can Barack Obama promise anything without first going to Congress? No, he can't. And the White House and environmentalists are very conscious of that. You have to remember that the United States has been in a similar place before about a decade ago, um, where, you know, the Senate voted 99 to nothing against ratifying the Kyoto Treaty. So the whole White House strategy since Obama has been president has to be has been to move in tandem Uh, with Congress and with the international community to make sure that whatever uh, is agreed internationally is something that that will be supported by Congress. And so there has been this very delicate operation here. Obama can't get ahead of Congress or he risks triggering a backlash in Congress against any deal. Also, he can't get ahead of China because uh, if America is seen to be offering too much at Copenhagen and Republicans in the Senate and moderate Democrats in the Senate say, oh, wait a minute, China isn't uh, cutting its emissions, and there'll also be a backlash against the deal. So there's a very delicate political dance that Barack Obama has 
to perform here. And that's what's making, that's part of the reason that things are moving so slowly as we move up to Copenhagen. At the same time, you have to remember, and I think this is something that's sometimes forgotten uh, outside the U.S., is that climate change is just one of the things on Barack Obama's plate right now. He's got health care. He's got rising unemployment. He's got concerns about the deficit. So he's got balancing acts going on on a number of different levels. James, this is the case for many countries at the moment, isn't it, with a global recession? Um, climate change just isn't necessarily at the top of their agenda. Well, absolutely right. I mean, and, you know, moving to a sort of low carbon economy takes investment, it takes money to buy wind turbines and solar power and efficient cars and electric cars, all that that kind of stuff, you know, it takes investment, which isn't really available at the moment. So the recession is kind of a double edged sword, because on the one hand, um, it's holding back economic growth, and it's therefore curbing emissions to a certain extent. But um, there was a study last week, actually, out of uh, Lord Stern's uh, research outfit, who said that uh, it, you know, although it will curb em- emissions, it will only slow down the point at which dangerous climate change comes by just 21 months. So we can't rely on it from that point of view. And at the same time, it's having this problem of uh, stopping investment. John, people tend to assume that because uh, of the way uh, China, the Chinese state is constructed, that um, if they uh, make a commitment in a, in a place like Copenhagen, then they will be able to carry it through. But I mean, is that necessarily the case? Can China take the stringent action that it might agree to in Copenhagen? It's a very different situation, obviously. Um, you do get some commentators who say that all the climate negotiations just prove that the American political system no longer functions very effectively and that when it comes to taking important drastic action there's no point going through a system like you have to do in the US that takes a lot of time that allows a few senators to block up the whole process and that actually it might even be better to have a less democratic system where you can move forward more quickly. I think that's slightly exaggerating what's going on. The The Chinese government uh, may not be elected, but it is still answerable to public opinion in in some regards. And also uh, the political system that that exists now in China is very different uh, in many ways to the one that existed during Mao Zedong's day. And President Hu Jintao does not have as much charisma. He does not have as much uh, personal authority and he has to balance a lot of interests So China also has to sell it to its own people, to uh, other powerful figures within the Chinese uh, government. And what they've done so far to try and do that is to say, look, our priority is to keep growing. That's absolutely the priority. But we are starting to feel the impacts of climate change with melting glaciers, with uh, growing problems of desertification, with uh, worse floods in the south. So we do have to do something about this. We do also have to show internationally that we're responsible. So the the, the compromise, if you like, or the way that they've tried to pull everyone on board is to say, we're going to grow green. Well, the Shadow Energy and Climate Change Secretary, Greg Clark, is uh, another person who has problems with climate change sceptics. We heard this week that the top 10 Tory bloggers are uh, climate change sceptics or deniers. Um, but he may be the person that has to implement any deal that's formed in Copenhagen. So how's he going to keep the sceptics at bay? Let's find out. I think everyone knows the degree of commitment to to climate change and environmental issues of the of the party. I mean, David Cameron's put it right at the forefront of his leadership from day one. It is absolutely 
deep, runs completely through what we would do in, in government. So I mean, the idea that a few bloggers, is it, that... Um, um, Quite influential, though, aren't they, in the party? Well, I, I report to you that the, the, uh, the Shadow Cabinet is not just kind of firmly, but actually kind of pas- passionately uh, committed to a seriously deep green environmental agenda. So I don't see how they could be influential if, um, if that's the view of the party. I don't think they are. What will be your approach if there isn't a deal at Copenhagen and the Conservatives win the next election and you're faced with the responsibility of trying to get a deal sooner rather than later? Well, I think just before I answer that, I think the, the most important thing to say is that it is important to have a rigorous deal at Copenhagen. In some ways, the worst outcome of Copenhagen would be a deal that was just there to have the handshake and the photograph at the end of it with all the world leaders that actually wasn't adequate to the task of keeping global warming down to or at least the chance of Is your sense two, that two, that two might degrees. happen? Well, I, uh, no, I wouldn't say that, but I think there's always a risk. I mean, the, you know, world leaders don't go to summits unless they hope to have some kind of agreement that they, you know, people have elections to fight that make them appear that they have saved the world, to coin a phrase. This really is about saving the world, and so it's important that the deal does save the world, not save someone's you know, political reputation. And, and that's true of all countries, all the kind of leaders represented there. It's not a particularly personal dig. Um, so, so I do think it needs to be rigorous and, and better to continue talking than to have something that is unacceptable. And if that transpires, if actually what is concluded in Copenhagen is not final, but further discussions are needed, I think it's absolutely clear that everyone in Copenhagen needs to know that there is complete unanimity of purpose between uh, the British government and the opposition. So if these discussions were to straddle a general election, there would be absolutely no diminution, you know, quite the reverse. We'd have the same intensity that the, the government, uh, I hope, will be displaying in, in Copenhagen, both to get a deal and to get a, an ambitious and progressive deal. Greg Clark. James, I mean, do you, do you think that the uh, Conservatives will take a fundamentally different approach to the climate from uh, the one we've seen under Gordon Brown and before that, Tony Blair? It seems unlikely, um, assuming you know Cameron sticks to the rhetoric that he's been uh, talking about. I mean, they do have some interesting uh, policies about funding uh, things like they're not particularly sexy things, but they're quite important. Um, funding uh, energy efficiency in homes, insulation, that kind of stuff. Um, they probably don't go far enough, but but they're you know a step in the right sort of direction. And you know the government hasn't moved fast enough on that so far. The problem I think the Tories have got though is that while the leadership and certainly Cameron is you know talking the talk and uh, and coming out with good sounding rhetoric on this and you know perhaps you could credit him with moving the issue into the political mainstream and giving Labour more space to act because previously um, you know it was not a, a top issue for the Tories they their grassroots is very ungreen as far as I can tell uh, I mean you, for example with the 1010 climate change campaign there's been much less uptake from Tory councils compared to Lib Dem and, and Labour councils around the country who've decided to sign up and you know this uh, news that the top 10 Tory bloggers as nominated by Total Politics magazine all of them uh, either are sceptical or just outright dismiss climate change as, as kind of you know a complete hoax. Suzanne is Obama winning the argument with the public in America? Um, no 
<laughs> Not entirely. I think the Obama administration made a very good start by trying to reframe this whole issue um, to, in terms of moving it away from the science and and perhaps from something that seemed abstract uh, to a lot of the general public, you know, and events, events that could occur very far in the future. And by sort of framing the whole climate change bill as an attempt to, uh, or as a move that would create lots and lots of jobs and put America on a sound economic footing. And in fact, when the bill was introduced in the Senate, it didn't even have the word climate change in the title. It was the Clean Energy Jobs Act. And uh, Democratic leaders said, this is all this is all about jobs. That being said, um, recent public opinion polls show that climate change and energy issues have moved way down uh, the list of topics of great concern to Americans. They're being crowded out by the economy and and healthcare and other things. John, what do the Chinese public think? Uh, I think it's moving in a different direction. I would say three or four years ago, almost nobody in China talked about climate change. This is a country where I I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about their carbon footprint and how to reduce it. Uh, It's just not an issue, or at least it hasn't been until very recently. And there are a number of reasons for that, uh, partly because they feel uh, as as a nation, a top level, this is not really our responsibility. We didn't make this problem. Somebody else really should be dealing with this. Also, because I think there's a lot of concern that Uh, The climate issue might be used to constrain Chinese growth uh, now that China is the world's biggest emitter and that they're picked on uh, more often. I think there's a sort of a a defensiveness about things, or at least there has been until recently. What's one big difference I've noticed is that uh, the the historical perspective is is completely uh, is completely different. It's much longer. Uh, Very senior scientists have said, look, China's been around for 3000 or some say 5000 years it's been much warmer than it is now in our history. We're going to sort of kick back a little bit, watch what happens and make a decision uh, later on. But in the meantime, we'll be responsible and we'll do something. Well, someone who's made an important contribution to the uh, economic imperatives behind tackling climate change is Nicholas Stern, the former Treasury economist, who's now chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. He told The Guardian's head of environment, Damien Carrington, that he does believe a deal is possible. I think that we should recognise that the political constellation now with... You know, still a new president who really does understand these issues in the United States, with China getting much more concrete about where it sees the future mm-hmm. of growth and thinking about its 12th five-year plan. With the new prime minister in Japan having declared for 25% reductions mm-hmm. 1990 to 2020, with Europe now got over its treaty problems and able to focus and look forward more mm-hmm. confidently. That, you know, you've got two years ago Kevin Rudd coming in in Australia replacing John Howard. There's a political constellation now and a momentum which is of real value. So there's an opportunity to take it. And we can't guarantee that that political constellation will be as favourable. So whilst there are timing issues in different countries, Mm. as clearly there are, including the United States, I think Mm. that constellation of international figures and understanding gives real opportunity and we can't take it for granted it'll be that good over the uh, indefinite future. It kind of almost feels like you're you're saying now or never. No, no, I'm saying this is a, we should recognise that this is a good time. Lord Stern, 
James Randerson, what do you think a successful deal in Copenhagen might look like? I think the best we can hope for realistically is that leaders come together and make some kind of substantive political statement that includes something along the lines of degrees of cuts, even if they don't flesh out all of the details, even if you know there, there aren't individual numbers on every country, if there's, if there's at least something and a, 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 a show of intent of where they want to go over the next few months, that would be good. And also some indication on the, the, the other big sticking point, which is the finance. How, how is it that the, the sort of transfer of money you know, the sort of numbers we're talking about are 100 billion euros a year from the rich world to the poor world to deal with uh, the effects of climate change and to mitigate climate change by adapting their economy so that they can grow in a low carbon way. Um, you know, how that money is going to be transferred, where it's going to come from and who's going to pay it are still massive questions. And some progress on that would, well, any progress on that, you know, the way things look at the moment would be a bonus. John Watts, what do you think? Um, I think the, the the best that could come from China is that China sets a carbon intensity target, a very clear one, which is not that we that the country is going to reduce its carbon emissions immediately, but it will reduce it relative to economic growth, and that then, or hopefully even at Copenhagen, uh, it will set a, a date for for when it aims to start reducing emissions overall, a peak date. Uh, perhaps around 2030, 2035, and before then to set uh, a, a target to reduce carbon intensity by, say, 4 to 5% a year is what people are talking about at the moment. It would be nice if there was something concrete on forestry. And China, what China really hopes to get is uh, something on technological transfer of low-carbon technology. And as it sees itself still as a leader of developing nations, to get a big number and a clear commitment to funding for mitigation and adaptation. And Suzanne, from Washington's point of view? Well, I mean, it would be great and very, you know, and it have a tremendous effect if the US were able to come to Copenhagen with a clear number of some kind. And there's people looking at ways that that could be done. For example, you know, with, with uh, ways, you know, to arrive at that number without getting, uh, without having the Senate on board. For example, the White House has has said that, you know, if it can't get a bill through Congress, it could use regulatory powers of the Environmental Protection Agency, which could sort of say, look, all uh, big power plants now have to make a cut in their greenhouse gas emissions. That's something that can be done with the stroke of a pen, really. And that's something that could be done before Copenhagen or uh, maybe a modified uh, bill in the Senate that would make some cuts, some limited cuts in greenhouse gas emissions. Maybe that would, without going to the extent of cap and trade, that's something being talked about now. And also remember, Barack Obama campaigned very heavily on this. And he went across the country saying that he would cut America's emissions, um, not by as much as the bills uh, before Congress. He only wanted cuts of 14%. But he was elected uh, president with a very strong majority. And he could maybe, <laughs> that would be some people's hope, decide to sort of use that political capital and come out with that promise at Copenhagen. So people are looking at options. Suzanne Goldenberg in Washington, John Watts in Beijing, and James Randerson here in London. Many thanks for joining us. And don't forget, there's full coverage on the road to Copenhagen at environmentguardian.co.uk. 
Phil Maynard was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Davis. Thank you for listening.